On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. Sometimes the best way to find out what makes a songwriter special is hearing someone else sing their songs. Listening to how other artists interpret their work brings out aspects of the music that weren't as obvious before. That's what Michael and I discovered when we put this episode together. This week, we're diving into versions of Billy Joel songs performed by other people. To do it, we compiled more than two dozen versions of Billy's music performed by other artists. For the most part, we stuck to songs that were officially released or performed on television. The songs range from 60s blue-eyed soul to 80s pop, country sensations, to punk and indie rockers. The arrangements varied from straight-ahead covers to nearly unrecognizable renditions. Join us as we go through the good, the great, the bad, and the bizarre Billy Joel covers. We'll talk through these new versions and what we learned about the original performances along the way. So when it comes to cover songs, you can do a few different approaches. You can try and stay pretty close to the original. You can completely do your own thing, totally different arrangement, straight from the melody, the whole nine, or you can do a hybrid of both. And when it comes to Billy covers, I think we're learning there's a lot of each category here. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple songs that really lend themselves to close interpretations, and there are a few that really stray off the beaten path. I didn't realize there were this many like legitimate release on albums covers, but there's a lot. Yeah, I mean, there was a few of these that I had known about over the years, but mm-hmm. as we started seeking them out, like the list just kept growing. I, I certainly didn't realize there was this many that were properly recorded, at least. A couple of them I liked, a couple of them I didn't like. A couple of them felt like the uncanny valley to me, where I felt like I just had to go back and listen to the original because it was like so close, but just not there. If you were to go through and listen to these yourself, you're going to get a different appreciation of Billy, not as a songwriter, but as a performer in the studio. A little bit of a songwriter too, but it's three things. You realize how idiosyncratic he could be in his composition. When you hear people try to get through a really gnarly phrase or a really Billy-specific phrase, they can't translate it as easily as you can like a Tin Pan Alley song, which were written for anybody to cover. There are certain things that only he can pull off. And to that point, too, you don't realize how much, especially his work with Phil, there was a lot of dynamic range. There was a lot of soft and loud on there. When you hear updated stuff from the 90s on, when they really started compressing everything, you realize what you're missing and the, and the real sense of drama that Billy and the band could put into this. I mean, just a passion in his singing, even in something where, like Just the Way You Are, where he kind of already thought it was schmaltzy putting it on the album. Uh, you realize yeah. how much grit he puts into his performance when you hear other people do it. You feel like it might be one of his cheesier songs in a way, but then you hear some of the covers and you're like, 
oh, maybe it's not as cheesy as I thought. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it can go a His little version, further. rather. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the last thing is, if you have somehow not been sold on the idea that the Lords of 52nd Street were an amazing band, hearing them not do these songs will clinch it. Because there's so oh, yeah. many times it just... I never really, really, really appreciated how tight Lib and Doug were until you heard different rhythm sections taking this stuff on. Between that and then Billy's left hand, it was like, that was really just one essence. <laughs> yeah, and really was the core ingredient mm-hmm. of those recorded performances. And and without the personality that the three of those melded together, the artists that put a bit of their own sound and spin on it, they've got a little more character. But some of the ones that try to stay a little truer to the original, you know, a lot of times they fall flat. So with that, I think we should jump in. So these are not in chronological order, by the way. So first we have Beyonce doing Honesty. From what I gathered, this was part of a Greatest Hits compilation that was released in Japan only. And I wonder if part of the reason for the choice was because Destiny's Child and Beyonce and Billy were all on the same record company. It is way easier to get clearance if it's the same company. So yeah, it was a Destiny's Child Greatest Hits record this is just beyonce so this was uh released in 2008 well past destiny's child the one thing that jumped out to me on this version was actually the bridge when they introduced some of the strings i thought that was an interesting arrangement choice there i did like that bridge i feel one thing mm-hmm. that was really missing was the essence of how honesty builds dynamically throughout the song it's a musical crescendo. Mm-hmm. So it starts with just piano, then piano and voice. And then if you listen to like Liberty's drum pattern throughout the song, what he's playing, it's slowly building and adding on throughout the song. So by the time he gets to that last chorus, you just really feel the build. With this version, as good as the vocal and everything is, it's pretty consistent dynamically throughout the song. I think this is a great case study for the difference in 40 or so years of recording is that there was certainly a lot more dynamic range on the original, even to the point where the strings on the original are really just window dressing. You had the dynamic lift before you added the strings, before you overdubbed the strings. What they did in the studio already went from soft to loud. In this right. version, you know, you can really hear the compression and you, you absolutely hear that on the bridge where the bridge doesn't suddenly punch up a notch. But you see the more modern way of doing it because that's where they add those strings and that's where they add a new element. The way they've really been doing it is they don't raise the volume, but they'll add a new element in where I think in earlier recordings, clearly they took elements in and out, but they did let the arrangement lie more on the actual sound of the band getting louder and softer. And that's the big difference here. I love the keyboard sound. I really like the keyboard sound. I was not crazy about the drum sound, but the keyboard sound was nice. Yeah, the keyboard, I really dug it. The program drums, I could have honestly done without it. It actually might have been even been a little more interesting without it. I'm not a fan of them, but I would have liked to hear, if you're going to go with a program drum, make it something that's not supposed to sound like a piece of metal. You know, make it sound like, not sound like an actual hi-hat. Don't go on Canny Valley. Give me the computer pipes. You know, like if you're going to do it, go all the way. Let me appreciate that. But you hear that? Yeah, that's a great Future Soul kind of keyboard sound that I've... You're hearing it now a lot more on some modern stuff like Hiatus Coyote will use it, Project Karnak, and, and well, they're a smaller like kind of fusion trio. I love that, that kind of, it bounces, it pans from left to right really quickly, but that kind of bell yeah. sound that goes back and forth. The guitar comes in, it's got a little Spanish vibe. It starts to get into like a elevator rock, but I kind of appreciated it. I enjoyed the elevator on this one, to be honest with you. <laughs> It was fine. I'm really not a big Beyonce fan at all, but I thought she did a decent job with it. I think it's clearly a Beyonce 
interpretation. But as far as those go, this was enjoyable. So next on our list, we've got Just the Way You Are by Diana Krall. I want to send her a bouquet of flowers for keeping uh, Liberty's drum rhythm on this one because it's such a distinct beat and it's on here and it's great. Melody, keyboard part, everything. She really brought her own flavor, but that core of the rhythm was still there. So I love that the groove stayed, but everything else around it expanded. She augments some chords. If you listen closely, she'll play a slightly different chord. She'll jazz it up, add some extra notes to it. A little jazzier, yeah. Yeah, it's subtle, but it's really, really nice. I really enjoyed those moments. It reminded me ever so slightly of Girl from Ipamina. Some of the more yeah, real yeah. pastoral versions of that one. Nice piece of keeping it in the pocket. Diana Krall's a great jazz singer, and she doesn't fly all over the register on this. She keeps it there, and she adds her own flourishes very nicely. I think this was a pretty successful single for her, if I'm not mistaken. If the uh, Beyonce one was Elevator, this was definitely Starbucks jazz to a certain degree. But again, the best of Starbucks jazz. Very enjoyable Starbucks jazz. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I like the bass. I like it sounds like a stand-up bass on there. Very nice touch on this one. That, I think, really brought it out of Schmaltz territory, was putting the stand-up on it. Just gave it a different feel. Now, we got an interesting one here. Joan Baez doing Goodnight Saigon. I want to say that you realize that Billy did a really good job of not getting a real dated 80 sound on the nylon curtain, but that might not be fair because this is only 82. It's not like he made it in 86 and we're applauding him for not using an electronic drum. But you, when you when you listen to this version of Goodnight Saigon, you really appreciate how timeless, really, the production is on Nylon Kurt. You know, on the original, the acoustic guitars and the piano just sound so organic and just mm-hmm. very, you feel like you're sitting in a room listening to them playing it. The drums do sound very big on um, Good Night Saigon yeah. for sure but the piano and guitar especially just have such an earthy natural feel and then with the shakers and everything for an 82 song it really does sound great you know it almost harkens back to the sound they had on 52nd Street but you have to remember that Glass Houses was in between so they had already moved on from that real wet 70s sound you realize that they brought it back a little on this one but not to the point where it would sound dated where it would sound like it was four or five years old yeah. I mean obviously there's yeah. a lot of Beatles influence but even even then, it's not Magical Mystery Tour either. As for Joan's version, I just felt like she she was very disconnected from the vocal. I didn't believe it. You know, with Billy, it was him sitting with his friends as they told him these stories. Mm-hmm. So I could feel that connection through it. I, I just didn't feel that in this version. Going into it, I wondered about a female singer singing from such a distinctly male perspective because it was 99.9% sure there were no female entry in, in the infantry in, in Vietnam, right? That was all men. I believe. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, not that you can't reinterpret it, but first I thought she did pretty good. I think she kept her warbling in check. She has a very folky, <laughs> you know, very, uh, very distinct voice. Sure. And then she hits the bridge and I'm like, well, so much for keeping that. In check. And I don't know that much Joan Baez, but I would say if you go back to Joe Hill on Woodstock. Yeah, she's definitely a bit disconnected here, but I don't think that's out of character for her. I think she kind of comes from that school of folk that's in a way disconnected in the fact that they're very obviously telling someone else's story. The drums almost sounded programmed to me. That's the, at least that big gated snare is, is so 80s yeah. and it's very easy 
to mistake a program snare for an electronic snare for uh, an acoustic snare that's been treated yeah. with gated reverb. Sure. I did like that there was an urgency to this one, and I attribute that to Joan Baez because she does so much that's politically charged anyway that I think she brought a little bit of a different fire to it. It was a hair on the tense side in a good way, I thought. There's a drum fill on the fade out, which uh, in my limited experience in the studio feels like it's one of those things where they kind of let the drummer stretch out like on the last couple seconds or he almost like sneaks it in and they're like, well, if it's good, we'll leave it. You know, if not, we'll fade right. it out 20 seconds yeah. or 10 seconds. The last thing I have on this one is I did like that she took out the echo. Night, night, night. I like that those weren't in there. I think that, at least for this version, worked very well. I think it would have sounded super awkward had she tried to do it, so that was a good call. And didn't, like, do some weird, like, thing where she just held out the note forever. I have a, a great version of her doing Deportees. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Really, really nice version of that. So the next one we've got here on the list is Lady Smith Black Mambazo mm -hmm. with River of Dreams. I think this was such a good pairing that I don't have much to say about it. Yeah, I, th I thought it was really, really good. The yeah. percussion intro was very different. I expected, I don't know why, but I expected that percussion part to be closer um, yep. that was the only thing that surprised me at first the backing vocals on the on the original clearly gospel inspired or clearly african or african-american inspired but as we yep. saw in shades of gray he had this celtic idea which may have been actually informing a bit of that percussion Whereas you, you automatically hear the congas and you hear those vocals and you think this is all a, like an African kind of vibe. And so yeah. I wonder if that's why the percussion ends up a little different here. Um, and once the actual, the drums kick in, definitely did keep the original vibe a bit. You know, it had that kind of groove that Zach Alford played. It's, it's noted as uh, Lady Smith either featuring or with Bill Champlin. And uh, I enjoyed his vocals a lot. Out of all the covers I've heard, I think he came the closest to really putting some emotion into it in, in a bit of the way yeah. that Billy does. And he really glides over it very nice. Something about the lead vocal made me think of 80s. That's all I wrote, so I guess I couldn't even articulate it well in my notes. Um, but <laughs> something about it made me think of like an 80s pop vocal delivery. I could see a line being drawn between this and like late 80s Steve Winwood. Even a little Peter Cetera. Background vocals were great. Yeah, they, well, obviously. <laughs> now, let's get into this thing. The Hoosier is doing yes. We Didn't Start the Five. I'm going to say this. I think I would have liked it a little better if I didn't see these dopes. Just my opinion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm with you. Yeah, it seemed a little hipster for hipster's sake in their look. I, I was like, is this like a Parks and Rec parody? Like, is this an outtake? Am I going to see Andy right. Dwyer jump in somewhere? The arrangement was interesting. There was mm -hmm. there's some choices on it I thought that were pretty cool. The verses they did do were out of order. Yeah, the hell was that? That, that made no sense to me. No. Like, to me, there's no reason why they shouldn't be in sequence order we didn't start the fire had in its way a very quick shelf life because it was very quickly became the thing you did in history class i can't see this being anything but ironic in 2008 or a novelty or however you want to put it yeah uh, i mean they had a decent kick in halfway through i didn't really mind the adjustments to the melody I wish they had yep. a cup of coffee before they started because they were, you know, pretty sleepy, sleepy. at the beginning. <laughs> and the horns... and the crowd, it took the crowd a minute to figure out what the heck was going on. Yeah. Some of the early crowd shots of this performance, you could tell there was a little bit of puzzlement. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Just as I'm like starting to be like, okay, this maybe is not horrible. The horns come in and it sounds like a damn mariachi band. Like, yeah. like you were close to something and then you just were like, nope. Probably the strangest cover that we came across. I don't know, I think. 
easily. I should note that a lot of these I picked directly from OneFinalSerenade.com. They, uh, whoever does One Final Serenade has a list of all the albums, and then he made up a fake album called uh, Sadness or Euphoria, which was like the fake story of like, oh, they, they had this big tribute to Billy Joel, and here's all the people that played on it. And, you know, just mm -hmm. a little narrative framework, and then they had a playlist that included a lot of these. We found a couple on our own, too, but that, that was the main pull for these. I like that we're doing these two back-to-back, because -back, the next one is a band called Creek, and they're doing Sleeping with the Television on. And you know what? These guys are a little hipster, too. But just yep. to show that I'm not being a punk about it, I like this one. I think these guys just I did too. a good job with it. So this is like kind of that uh, hipster hoedown kind of thing. A little bluegrassy. Yeah. Oh, what do they call it? There was almost a neighbor. There's a bunch of guys in Philly that do bluegrass, and it's almost got its own name, like urban bluegrass or something like that, where it's got a yeah. hint of detachment, but not really. They at yeah. least understand super, that they're not hayseeds. Super popular in the past 10 years. Yeah, exactly. I almost thought this was a Tiny Desk concert. Had that vibe. Which served, the production of it served well. It was a little clangy, definitely recorded in the room, which for something like this mm -hmm. is great. A lot of bluegrass stuff sounds good when it's not multi-track when it sounds like they got one or two mics in the room yeah a couple condenser mics and everyone's just kind of huddled around playing together i thought it was funny in the youtube description it says our version of the billy joel smash number one hit sleeping with the television on so <laughs> I'll, I'll accept that as ironic you know and what alternate universe was <laughs> yeah. that in a good alternate I mean, granted universe. as you all know by now this is like at the top of the heap for jack and i right sleeping with the television on but let's face it it was not even close it wasn't a single i think the only live is it as a B-side in 1986. Did it really? It was the B-side to Modern Woman. That's right. Not about that. But let's see. So this one, really nice, really, really nice version. Uh, the, the instruments yep. blended great. The fiddle yes. came in at just the right times. Uh, yep. The harmonies were fantastic. And the vocals were great. I love And it moved. It really kept, it had a nice bounce. It did. It bounced. Now, he was slightly disaffected in that modern way, but not to a point where it right. took away. Almost like, you know, he didn't want to overpower the instruments because it was, they were playing. Right. Um, but what a, what a fantastic version of this song. Very surprising. I wasn't expecting it, and it worked out so well. And I love me some slapback bass. That kind oh, of yeah. thing. Yeah. So now we're going into the 80s with Sheena Easton doing The Entertainer. We didn't have this one on the list for this one, but there is the Helen Reddy version from the late 70s, which is bizarre, like haunting your dreams bizarre. Did you ever see that one? I saw her do You're My Home. Oh, you gotta see The Entertainer. I don't I know if she ever put it out on an album, but it's like, it's freaking weird, man. It's just like, it's got this really big, like horn riff arrangement. You see it? Yeah, she's oh, wearing yeah. a dress. But watch how she dances in that. Because I, I guess now we'll just speak about these two together. Because I don't know if that one was on an album. But give yourself a second. Just, just, just take that in. Oh yeah, I'm even looking at the photo of the the video. I have seen it. It's it's a strange one. Yeah. Well, the thing is, remember the way she dances? She kind of does this weird two-step thing every time there's a break. And I think that's where Sheena Easton picked up some of those moves in the video. Oh yeah. Yep. I don't know that Helen Reddy put that out on an album or anything. But I, I would highly suggest not getting stoned and watching that version because you'll be up all night. <laughs> but yeah, so back to the Sheena Easton one. This is a great example of how idiosyncratic Billy could be. I mean, you know, you hear The Entertainer and you're like, oh, hey, oh it's a Billy Joel song, you know, and you're right. grooving with it. And then you put that in anybody else's hands and just nobody can get a piece of this one. No. It's just so Billy, you know what I mean? Coming from him, like the reasoning behind it, yes. just his little tongue-in-cheek finger to the music business. 
Mm-hmm. So you had the little chip on the shoulder already, you know, going on a bit. Yeah. Had just enough of the attitude and all that. You know, with this version, you take all of it away. And it's funny because you, you think amongst anybody that's made it in the music business, they're going to find something to latch onto. They all do it as an act. When uh, when Helen Reddy's doing it, she's, it's a theater thing. Like, did you really make it without, like, getting pissed off? Like, I mean, good on you if you did, but... I would think that so many musicians and artists would, like, get it. I guess it's just such a weird song the way it's put together and I think yeah. we've discussed that one of the things that makes the entertainer great is how very carefully arranged and layered it is that instruments come in and they just get keeps building and you got the Moog and you got the banjo coming in and there's all that ragtime piano that he's playing like while he's singing like Hendrix style you know I guess they just didn't have room for that stuff or, or you know it just didn't fit into late 70s or 80s production and they you know so the Sheena Easter version I mean okay so the Helen Reddy version is like pretty show band late 70s you can at least figure out what the hell's going on it's an odd variety show take on yes yes mothers brothers kind of it's show it's theater yeah Yeah. exactly and you're like okay this is not a great version but i understand it it makes sense in this universe the sheena easton version just has like they couldn't figure out what to do with it and it's just the video is like just her and an empty studio with like drums like all this back all this band back line and she's doing like kind of and nobody else is on stage yeah (laughs) it's just doing these weird cha-cha things in the background you know what it's almost it felt like and even in the performance but in the appearance it's like all right there's a band going on later tonight so there's their gear meanwhile we're doing karaoke <laughs> you, you think like uh you know like the, the studio was set up for white snake to do their video and they just like ran sheena easton in there real quick it was like hurry up right do your yeah. thing, you know yeah and they both make bug eyes in their videos when they do this one yeah that one was puzzling i just i remember i'm like this is bizarre why <laughs> i choose this song yeah, a couple of times they got a good bounce going and they just kept throwing it away, which was a shame. Yep. It's like, I mean, oh, there it is. Nope. Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> nope. From this puzzling 80s cover, <laughs> now we're going to move into what is arguably probably one of the hallmark Billy Joel covers in his career. Yeah. In fact, this version is much more successful than Billy's. Mm-hmm. So we're talking Garth Brooks and Shameless. Yeah. <laughs> if we discussed this, I'm not a Garth Brooks yeah. fan. He does what he's supposed to do with this one. I'm going to compare this to Beyonce. I think it's like yeah. the country version. I, they're really sisters on this, man. There's like no dynamics. The no. singing is a bit cool in both of them. And they do the same thing of just like adding an element, taking it out here and there instead of working the dynamic. I don't hate it. It's just there's no dynamic to it. There's no punch to it. You know, yeah. Billy was channeling Hendrix. And that's the kind of vibe he was going for. So mm-hmm. big guitar rock and roll. Gosh, you know, the guitar parts, I think it was actually David Brown. It was maybe a combination of David Brown and Mick Jones on the mm-hmm. record. But just had some incredible guitar work. And then you replace that with just pedal steel that's just kind of sitting there. The bridge on the original Shameless is like, it's devastating. Billy's really vulnerable on that bridge and really into Down it. on his knees, like the song, you know? Yeah. It's like, it's like you can just feel him like, just no, oh, yeah, it, he, it translates so well, and that on the Garth ver- version doesn't really yeah. do it. I mean, you know, he's got a good voice. I don't know what y'all think about country music. Wow, I actually said y'all. Yeah, I, I heard that. Yeah, <laughs> but during that period of time, a lot of country production was pretty flat, pretty safe. But, but you know what's funny about that? Compare that to Creek doing Sleeping with the Television on. And then, you know, yep. it seems like that era of big country was stuck in this, like, uncanny valley again. Yeah. It makes sense because when you figure that, like, old country, like, classic country, the legacy of that going back to, like, Hank Williams and stuff was, like, one well-placed mic in the room kind of stuff anyway. So there's right. probably a legacy of that. And then by the time you get to Creek doing this and what, what was that, like, I don't know, 2010 or something like that, mm-hmm. back to that idea of one mic. But 
yeah, when you do it in the middle where it's like you, you go for that flat sound, not because you have to, because you're choosing to, but you're probably got a million mics yeah. on everything in a multi-million dollar studio, you end up with something yeah. that, to me at least, sounds sterile. What's interesting is Garth's live shows are very much rock shows. His production is big, big mm. guitars, big drums. It's like a Def Leppard show. <laughs> I mean, lights and pyro and big yeah. screens. And I mean, very much a rock vibe. But the records are very safe. I, I'd probably enjoy him if I went to see him live, but you, you wouldn't catch me dead with a record. <laughs> Got a couple of his records because I appreciate the songwriting. He's certainly talented. I mean, he wouldn't have sold all these records without it, but I don't find I go back to it much. So from there, we're going to venture into boy band territory with a British band called Westlife doing Uptown Girl. Yeah. Now, here's a funny thing about this one. They do it a step. It's a step or a half step down from the original. And the reason I know that is uh, because I believe, don't quote me on this because I'm just the drummer. The original is an E flat and they put it up to E. And when my band used to do it, we used to do it in E only because... Or maybe it's D. I think it's D. They went down to D. And we did it like that only because playing it on guitar in E flat was like, just didn't work. You would have to tune everything down a little to get the voicings right. So yeah. I actually have listened to this one a million times because we used to all practice harmonies to this version because we couldn't practice to the Billy record. But then they do a gear shift change up. They go up to the E flat, the end. So then we, we would have to like cut it yeah. off for like two minutes and 30 seconds. And like uh, Alexis, our singer, like the backup singer, uh, she couldn't listen to like the, the last half of it because it would get in her head you know <laughs> i would oh right sure so arrangement rise there's a lot in here that's close to the original and of all the covers of uptown girl i've ever heard this is the only version that gets the drum intro correct i had this conversation with liberty years ago too to the point where we were trying to figure out if it was a sample just the very yeah just that as liberty says that phil is my name liberty (laughs) devito did he do that on purpose or i think somebody pointed that out later i think i heard it yeah i'm not sure most every other version i've ever heard is just doing straights and it just loses it to me but for some reason on this they really got it It's, it's frighteningly close It's a combination of the accents on there and there's just like a slight swing on the notes because it, it is just a straight 1E and 2E, you know? Tiny crack to it, yeah. yeah. Um, Two drummers here like going through <laughs> the accents yeah. and you see us you know, moving our hands if you could see us. Up, down, tap, up, down, tap. Yeah, hey, man, this, this is a good version. Like, yeah, to, it's fun. Did somebody really pick the right one? I mean, you know, if you're going to be a boy band, you're going to have four dudes singing harmonies. What a great song to do it on. You know, they do a good job it, with it. It's yeah. not too schmaltzy. It's decent. A lot of the boy bands have a very similar vocal delivery where there's not a lot of edge and soul to it, Yeah, really. It's kind of vanilla, but that works for Uptown Girl. It does, and they don't go totally theater kid on it yeah. play it right down the middle in a very nice way they don't put any extra grit that wasn't on there in the first place they don't make it sound like an episode of glee either but the only thing i don't like about it is that i don't think the breakdown's in there no they skip it at least on yeah. the version that i had the radio i don't know if there's any other mixes of it the kind of sound they were going for and as we were talking about compression and things like that it'd be such a dropout that they probably didn't want to risk it for radio play to be perfectly honest probably yeah. be afraid that people would turn it off or they would like drift away on it we're on a good run of decent in the pocket covers here because next one is uh the great dolly parton doing travel and prayer and i remember seeing this very randomly whatever award show she did it on yeah i don't know why i was watching it but i was in college i was like oh there's dolly parton oh 
oh, she's doing Billy Joel. And whoever was there was like, what are you talking about? I was like, no, this is a Billy Joel song. This is off his second album, you know. And yeah, I love that it's a deep cut to where yeah. a lot of people who heard it only from Dolly probably had no idea it was a Billy Joel song. She gets it. She does a great job. To be fair, it's shooting fish in a barrel, doing a country version yeah. of this, but... You still could have screwed it up, and she did not. By any no, way. she did not. It was so right in her wheelhouse. So mm-hmm. I don't know if she chose the cover, or, you know, if it was like management brought it to her, or a label, or you know, there's a lot of people involved in the conversation when yeah. artists who do other people's songs. But it was great choice. Yeah, great choice. For sure. Did she ever do this one in the studio, or was this only on TV? Studio as well. This is studio. Yeah, so, she did track it. It was on a record. Here's what's funny about it. I don't know if she comes in on the wrong beat or if she's just that damn good at the beginning. Because it comes in weird. I mean, he's syncopated. He's on the up. You know, she comes in really weird on that first note. And then it finds its way to the downbeat after a measure or so. It doesn't sound awkward, but like right. you and I having heard the original a million times, and then for this, you know, sitting with headphones with a pen and a pad, taking yeah. notes on it, and, and the fact that we're drummers, I'm like, what? Right. What just happened there? It was like, where did it go? Yeah. Yeah, it was like on CW Post when they were starting Worst Comes to Worst, and we're like trying to count out the downbeat and see what happened, you know. Yeah, I love the little variation she put on the vocals there. The vocal rhythm and the melody just kind of floats it over a little. And I think that's where that came from. Whatever happens at the very beginning of that definitely calls to the to the way she was doing it. Band sounded good on it, too. I don't know who the players were, but I, I dug it. I think this one worked, too. It's kind of like Uptown Girl. It's because it's not a real Billy song. It was one he was really... Yeah. Obviously, all his country stuff was not the kid from Long Island. This was a guy out in California trying to do some California stuff. And then Uptown Girl, he was just trying to be the Four Seasons. For the ones that, like, the entertainer is so idiosyncratically him and it doesn't work, these ones, when he's doing an impression anyway, he's just getting into, like, good standards writing. More often than not, those are the kind of covers that work, those type of songs. Yeah. The next one we have is Helen Reddy again. She's doing You're My Home. Now, the caveat here is I'm getting this information from a YouTube comment. The comment so states that Billy Joel didn't like this version of it. Has that been corroborated anywhere? I've heard that too, but I couldn't I couldn't cite that as fact. Yeah. I don't understand why not. This is his second album. His first album he wrote because he wanted other people to be covering his songs. You know, granted that wasn't his, you know, M.O. going into Piano Man, but uh, it's not a bad version. I mean, it, it is what it is. You know, it's a nice 70s country rock song. I don't know if maybe he felt it was a little vanilla, a little bland. Mm-hmm. It's felt like a pretty stock 70s song. For oh, him, yeah. For me. It's just one of those things where, like, you could pigeonhole it so well that it's enjoyable. It's not hurting your brain. Right. <laughs> Again, though, at the time when this came out, the frame of reference for a Billy version was the Piano Man version. This mm-hmm. predates Songs in the Attic, where True. the song really comes alive. I, I didn't mind this one, though. No. <laughs> you know, I was kind of indifferent, I think, is where I landed with it. Yeah. It was very of its time. So next, we've got Jennifer Warren doing And So It Goes. And I think this was the late 90s cover. 2001, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you what, man, I looked this one up, and then she was not a a young woman when she did this, but she really sounds like it. I don't know that much about her, but geez, her voice held up. Jennifer Warren is like the queen of 80s duets. Oh, really? I've Had the Time of My Life with Bill Medley. Hmm. Remember that song? Oh, that's her? her? I didn't know that. Okay. Somewhere Out There with Peebo Bryson. I believe that's her as well. Mm Mm-hmm. I think she did something with Aaron Neville. Huge 80s duet. Yeah, I know. Um, I didn't know that. Every time I hear her voice, that's where I go. Tell you what, I had to look this up because the arrangement and the production was pretty timeless. And honestly, she sounds just like she sounded in the 80s. It sounded incredible. 
definitely, definitely did. Um, I mean, you know, there's not much of this song to begin with, arrangement-wise. She adds, a, you know, there's a little bit of strings in there, which which came in very nicely. Embellished a couple chords again to great effect. Great version of it. Really, really nice. Again, not not yeah, much more to say because it was good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's just a, a, a fantastic singer. Just an amazing tone, and I've always liked her voice. So this was mm-hmm. nice to hear. Next, we got a fella named Texas Fretz, and he's digging real deep here. He's doing Souvenir. Yep. Find this one on YouTube, the one on his channel. He responds to a lot of comments, so he's kind of all over the comment section, which is pretty cool. This has got like a distant sound to it, and he says that like just happened to be like where the tape recorder was or something when he did it, that he liked the sound of it. You know, where the Street Life Serenade version is a little thin in a nice way, like even when you're listening to it digitally, it sounds like there's some tape roll on it. You kind of get that here too. He sticks it pretty close. There's even some moments when he's going into the upper registers where he's almost getting that throat thing that Billy gets when he goes up. Like a clean Something sound? about the tonality of his voice when he goes into the high registers really did remind me of what Billy does. Oh, yeah. When it goes clean and it almost sounds like harmonized or something. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how yeah. to describe that, but that's close I can get. Yeah. So here's a, here's a funny thing, though, about this guy. Like I said, he responds to a lot of comments on this one. A couple of them, he's like, oh, I love Billy Joel, this and that. So he says, yes, Billy Joel is great. I remember buying blah, blah, blah and wearing out that tape. Actually, I think I might have had the record first and then the tape. I still have the tape, but it screeches like crazy in my tape player. But he says, I remember buying the Souvenir album in 1977, which is curious. There was that promo LP called Souvenir. Okay. It's a black and white cover drawing of him. Yeah, that must have been what he had then. Okay. Well, I take back my snarkiness. With you in here, it got a leg up on me. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe he was thinking of the wrong thing, because I I don't know how easy that would have been to find then, but that's where my brain went, at least. I mean, maybe he came across it, you know. Next on the list, we've got the Manhattans doing Everybody Has a Dream. I'm really happy this one found a home. Again, another vocalist who really is finding some of the Billy. He kind of gets to mute him halfway, because Billy's already doing Ray Charles a bit. This is a great slice of Philly soul, man. This is just nice and wet, nice and 70s. Okay, so drummer stuff again. They give it a real three feel instead of a six. Snare is on the two and four, one, two, three, four, five, six, instead of one, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, that was different for sure. You know, as soon as I saw the cover, I was like, oh, this is going to be good. Like, you just see the clothes, mm-hmm. you see the group, you're like, oh, this, this is going to be fantastic. There's no two ways about it. Yeah. And this one oh, does yeah. not disappoint. Yeah, that's It's, it's really great because it's such a forgotten Billy Joel song that it's nice to see somebody do a really good job with it. I mean, it's kind of tucked away on The Stranger. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, you know, like kind of how Souvenir used to be at his shows. It's like the, the party's over <laughs> and it's just kind of tucked away at the end. With The Stranger being a record that had just hit after hit after hit, the song kind of gets forgotten. So let's just bring everything to a grinding halt with this next one, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Ugh. What was this from Glee? My notes were, is it Glee? Is it an American Idol person? Does it really matter? Mine was, this guy's voice can kiss my ass. <laughs> yeah. All right. So so we're talking about Everybody Loves You Now by some fella named Andy Mientis featuring Jennifer Hudson. Jennifer Hudson did so the, a nice job. She took the, like, the second half of this thing. And so she's an American Idol okay. vet, so maybe this kid was an American Idol guy. He's way too precious. He didn't have one scrap of this song. Just nothing on None it. Of Just it. had no clue what to do with this thing. Jennifer Hudson, yeah. having heard this, I'd look up anything else by her. I mean, I'd be afraid that everything else is overproduced, but she got a piece Oh, she's of a great it. singer. Her voice really filled it out. 
I'd like to see her uh, really dig into it a little more. I mean, obviously the production of this yeah. held everything very contained. I would have really liked to see her start belting on this. You need a lot of muscle to sell this song, and uh, Andy had none. Yeah. And so many of these Glee American Idol recordings are so bland and so safe that it's not surprising. I did notice that they changed the line. Ah, but you ain't got the time to go to Cold Spring Harbor no more. Yeah, it's Jennifer taking the line, but it's something like, and you ain't got the time to be who you used to be no more. Yeah, now that you mentioned that, I remember something like popping out. I'm like, Billy would never write that line. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and this is a perfect version. Whenever they do this stuff on like Glee, people are like, ooh, Billy Joel is a balladeer and he's just like schmaltzy, but it's like, all right, well then how come these songs don't work with the schmaltz? You know, how, how, right. like, you know, you needed a little something That's different. That's the thing. <laughs> Anytime somebody goes schmaltzy with these songs, they fall so flat. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like, come on, <laughs> don't be changing a lyric because the audience might not understand it. Yeah, man, that's the kind of thing you got to, like, look up later. Like, if you don't know what he's talking about, and then it adds, like, another dimension to it because you looked it up, you know? You know, I've been on an Aaron Sorkin kick again. Uh, I go through all his shows every couple of years. Just finished The West Wing. You know, one of the criticisms that he used to get was that he was writing over the audience's head. Uh -huh. And he's like, I'm not going to dumb down the writing. They can catch up. Yeah, especially now that you got the internet. It's like, yeah, you don't understand something. Look it up. It's, it's like, oh, okay. He's from Cold Spring Harbor. Right. Okay. So it's like, you can't go home again. It's like, yeah, just take two seconds and look up the look it up. And yeah, you'll figure it, it out. Yeah, if it catches your ear, you know. So there's a cover band called Me First and the Gimme Gimmies, and it's kind of like a pop punk kind of thing where they do these pop punk versions of like a lot of 70s and 80s mm -hmm. classic rock and pop songs. And they've got three Billy Joel tunes that I'm aware of. Uptown Girl, Only the Good Die Young, and The Longest Time. I'm going to say that your enjoyment of this is going to depend on what grade of high school you were in in 1999 and how many yeah. uh, checkered hats you owned. I like some of that stuff, not not too much. And I wrote for a punk magazine in like the early 2000s. The Fat Record stuff never really caught me, to be honest. Rancid was good. I don't think they were on Fat Records though. But uh, well, the Screeching Weasel never did it for me. It was really in the thick of when the whole pop punk thing was like way oversaturated everywhere. Yeah, I and mean, this is like that first or second wave of pop punk. Cause now there's like this pop punk out now, and it's a, it's a new beast. Yeah, this was like, you know, five or six years after Green Day, and they, they kind of got a hold of it. So, yeah, these three songs just tell you, again, how good Liberty and Doug were, because that's the problem with these. There is zero pocket. It's not aggressive, and it's not swinging. It's just in the middle somewhere. And this doesn't, I don't think this was Pro Tools yet, you know? It's not like they were quantizing. No, no, they weren't. And all these songs are faster. Yeah. So the tempo's up, but it, yeah, it doesn't have the feel. It feels like they're just in a room. They're just going to, like, for fun, just go through it and move on. They didn't do anything interesting with the arrangements. That's half the problem. You know, nothing cool happened here. And, you know, if you listen to Social Distortion, who was out around the same time, when they did a uh, cover, man, they did a good job. They did Ring of Fire. Well, that, that's the big one. On uh, Somewhere yeah. Between Heaven and Hell, they had a couple that I didn't even realize were covers. They were so damn good. Born to Lose is on there, Make and Believe great songs man and they had like yeah. a little bit of pocket to them this is just you get a half a point for putting suspect device in the beginning of the longest time but here's the thing halfway through this i'm like you lazy bums where's your danzig impression on the longest time like come on oh. this is like if you're gonna yeah, be a goofball yeah. throw me some danzig it's yeah. hate uh, was it Missed hate breeds, right oh hey pretty oh you know like he does that anyway man ah, damn punks
<laughs> you can't see, but I'm, I'm yeah, right. I'm shaving. I'm I mean, wearing, it's wearing a novelty thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like it's total novel. And he ducks too many notes on Uptown Girl. Right. I would appreciate it if you were a punk band and you just strained and missed it, but you didn't even you didn't even swing. You and were caught looking. Yeah, my old college roommate's gonna argue with me, but I don't talk. He was in a ska band. I got you. I got your back. <laughs> um, so now we're digging back into the '70s yeah. again. Oh yeah. I feel like it's in the '70s, either that or the '80s. But it's Barry White doing <laughs> "Just the Way You Are." Oh, that spoken word intro! If that ain't the '70s, I don't know what else is. That came yep. on. I looked down, and all of a sudden, my carpet was shag. I don't know what happened. I looked up. I had a paisley shirt and bell bottoms on. I don't own them, but you know what? The song came on, and there they were. But yeah, this is like vintage Barry White. I mean, it sounds like so many songs it is. Yeah, oh, it's it's good though. I mean, don't get me wrong, man. This is a nice version. They don't do the drum beat, and I excuse them. You know, <laughs> like. Yeah. If you say Just The Way You Are by Barry White, you're like, go ahead. I'm intrigued. I'll accept that pitch. Yeah, he throws in a hey there after uh, don't change oh, yeah. the color of your hair. Hey there. Smooth you know, R&B kind of, yeah. The arrangement's dynamically pretty flat. But here's what yeah. I like about it. As sort of um, kind of cliched right now, something like Barry White or Isaac Hayes would be like, you know, it's, it's easy to kind of poke some fun at and have some fun with. What made these work was that he was a great soul singer. They just gave him a bed track. He just did what he wanted with it. Probably yeah. one of those things where he could never sing it the same way twice. And, you know, they yeah. just grooved in the background. They got out of his way, but it had a nice swing to it. And then he just, yep. he just sang it and he had some nice deviations and he had some nice flights of fancy on there without getting too crazy. And it's very enjoyable. And everybody keeps the odds. Do you notice that? Those backing vocals yep. on the original. If this was made five years later, I would think that was a keyboard patch. Like, that's how, like, on they are. Yeah, Everybody yeah. has. Anybody that's done a cover of this on this list keeps those odds in there. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's picked up on that because it's not super obvious. It fills the space. When it's not in there, you really notice. There's a band called Bayside. And I'm going to place this in the early 2000s because I think they actually toured with a band that I used to work with. Oh, which band? Uh, the Riddling Kids. And that was, like, the early 2000s in mm. the kind of the emo pop punk world and they do a pretty guitar heavy version of moving out here if the phrase victory records means anything to you it's a victory records band yeah um, yeah there you go i'm mixed on this one sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't it's hit and miss throughout the song like when yeah. it works it's great but there's some spots that i don't love what they did with it you know we were talking about how songs in the last 20 years aren't very dynamic and this song it's like hitting the same all the way through the spots where yeah you wish it would kind of pull back it doesn't what made this song so great i think is, is just how tight the rhythm was on it they would occasionally wash out the rhythm and really open it up and it was like stop doing it. it's a very tense song you know you got to have yeah. that tight feel in it do they double time it in some of the verse yeah they were like i did really like the outro the two guitars yeah that sounded nice i'm hot and cold on the guy's voice I feel like he gets away with it because he's from Long Island. Like, I'll just take whatever he does, you know? Yeah, yeah, Long yeah. Long Island's got this yeah. pop punk, hardcore kind of scene going on. So, you know, even if it's not my cup of tea, I'll just be like, all right, well, that's what kids from Long Island sound like today. Billy's what they sounded yeah, like yeah. 40, 50 years ago. And that's what they sound like. Home yeah. field advantage. I do feel like they took it serious. They were and that genuine. I appreciate. Because it was like, there was a the period where it was like the covers were like filled with irony. We think it's a joke. Hey, look at us. We're this hip band doing a Billy Joel song. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this wasn't that. I, I really felt like they dug the song and were just trying to do their own thing with it. 
So next is a band called Copeland, which was around the same time, and it's a cover of She's Always a Woman. Unfortunately, I was not 15 in 2004, so this didn't track yeah. me. So yeah, they had a record called Beneath Medicine Tree that came out before this, and mm-hmm. I, I dug the record for the most part. There was a lot of bands around this time that it was kind of a whiny vocal. These guys kind of dip into that uh, here and there. I think the version's okay. There's not a whole lot to it. I do know that this was part of a cover EP that they did, and they actually did a really good version of Another Day in Paradise. Oh, that's Phil Collins, right? Yeah. Yeah. This goes into, uh, I forget which episode I was saying it, but early 2000s were just such a dead time culturally, and these records were a byproduct of it. Just not quite self-aware in the way kids are now. I don't really have too much of an opinion one way or the other. It's So after that, we've got Ronnie Spector and the E Street Band doing Say Goodbye to Hollywood. I feel like this is like approaching Dadaist art, putting right? these three elements together on this song. Like, like conceptually yeah, you, speaking. So you got a like, Billy Joel song yeah. that was written with Ronnie Spector in mind. Right. So it's Ronnie cutting it with the E Street Band as her band. A band that, that wasn't necessarily trying to do Phil Spector and Ronnie Spector, but like was definitely always harking back to that era. It's the E Street Band. I mean, the second you hear the band, you, you hear it. Oh, the second you hear that saxophone, you're like, well, that, that would be a certain Mr. Clemens. Like, there's no two ways And then you know it. what? They get they get in the tune, and here come the sleigh bells. <laughs> I was like, yep, there it is. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, yeah. You don't automatically notice that it's Max Weinberg, but yeah, it's the sleigh bells and the saxophone. You're like, yep, yeah, that's 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 Bruce and the guy. Yeah. Yeah, Bruce yeah. plays acoustic guitar, but he's not credited because he was still in his lawsuit with Mike Appel. There's a uh, quote from uh, Steve Van Zandt. Think about a Hollywood back with Baby Please Don't Go was Cleveland International Records' first single. Label's founder, Steve, I don't know how to say his last name, Popovich. Popovich? Popovich, yeah. Had the idea that Ronnie Spector records the single with the E Street Band. Lifelong best friend Steven Van Zandt said about him in 2017. I told him East Street was in big trouble, broke. He had the idea, then overpaid us, saved the band. Because this was huh. before Darkness came out. So this is, I guess, was Born to Run. And then he gets into all the legal wranglings with Mike Appel. And then he doesn't record for like five years. And they thought that was going to be the end of them because they couldn't put out a follow-up record. So this came out yeah, during so- that time. So in a technical sense, Billy Joel saved Bruce Springsteen's career. Yeah. <laughs> hey, there you go. Yeah. I actually have a 45 of this about... A couple years ago, it came out on record, one of the record store days. There was like a, a reissue of it. It's funny, you know, listening to it like we were talking about just the juxtaposition of all these elements come together. Billy's delivering it on turnstiles, trying to sound like Ronnie. <laughs> so Ronnie's singing it like Billy trying to sing Ronnie, yeah. <laughs> but doing her thing. It's a very surreal track. Yeah, it's not surreal just to listen to it. It's only surreal if you if you understand the web. Yeah. There's a video clip of her doing this, and she's in, like, overalls or something. She's got that kittenish voice. I, I enjoyed her voice on this. It, it really sticks with you. Growing up, I wasn't that hip to the Phil Spector, Ronnie Spector stuff back in the day. I came to know Ronnie Spector because of Eddie Money. Do you remember the big hit they had together, Take Me Home Tonight? That was Phil Spector? No, that was Eddie Money and Ronnie Spector. Oh, okay, that makes more sense. Yeah, yeah I know. The I chorus is like, Take Me Home Tonight, and then he's like, it's just like Ronnie says, and then she's like, be my little baby. And so like she does the chorus with them. Ah. Yeah. So it's a fun one. I'll throw this hot potato at you. What do you think of Richard Marks doing to Miami 2017? I don't know what I think about it. I've heard it quite a few times over the years. It doesn't stray from the original, really. It's pretty close. And it sounds like, a you know, an 80s Richard Marks tune. 
better or worse. <laughs> um, There's some great moments, but some of it sounds very 80s. Just something about the way he sings. I'm like, oh, so that's where those emo kids in the early 2000s got it. Proto whiny <laughs> in a way. Like when I was right. listening to it, I had to double check. I'm like, this is Richard Marks. Like I thought this was Copeland again or something. <laughs> right. You know, I never made that connection before, but he definitely has that. It's like where it gets a little whiny when he pushes, which is very emo thing. Well, you know, Billy actually played on a Richard Marks tune. Okay, so I actually found this Facebook post. It says, had the honor of Billy Joel playing piano on a track from my Rush Street album in 1991. And then there's a photo that says, this is us, NYC, at the studio where we recorded. Was that the album this is from, though? I don't know if this made a proper album or if it was like a bonus track or... Yeah, it was a bonus track on the international versions of uh, Paid Vacation. I just looked that up. But yeah, I, I don't know. The, the version's fine. I think the, mm -hmm. the arrangement, the band sounds pretty good. The piano sounds good. I think it's closer to the songs in the attic version as far as the way it's played. Like, I know he ended it like the attic version. I put this one in the Uncanny Valley. Didn't deviate enough and didn't play it exactly enough, you know, in terms of like the actual attack and things like that. So what do you think of this next one? Summer Highland Falls, Peter, Paul, and Mary. Did you ever see A Mighty Wind? I sure did. It's like perfect. The, I can see this in that movie. This is another one you can't complain. If you like Peter, Paul, and Mary, you're going to love this version of it. It's absolutely the Peter, Paul, and Mary version of the song. Drums are pretty rollicking. Drums have a couple of nice moments in this. It's so different. Yeah. That, that's part of why I can't really hate on it. If they tried to get closer to it, I would have probably criticized how they missed elements of right. it, but they really made it their own thing. And the only the only thing I have to say is, like, didn't they, like, start, like, repeating verses? Like, they just keep singing stuff over and over again because it goes off for, like, four yeah. minutes. Yeah. They yeah. cut part of the intro, and then they just have to sing, like, a verse twice or something funny like that. Yep. Going back to where we were talking about the whole Ronnie Spector and the E Street Band where the artist who inspired the song performs it we get another taste of that here with bill medley doing until the night bill medley being one half of the righteous brothers indeed definitely missed the lord's kick on this one Appreciate you know it. the breakdown of the billy version mm -hmm. that whole section and then it builds back up going into richie's amazing sax solo that's all missing yeah, it's definitely one that just makes you really miss and appreciate what they had in the studio. Yeah. Like, yeah, they are so tight, man. And you don't realize it until you hear other people play it. Yeah. They were like on a dime. Well, and that's the thing, because, you know, a lot of these artists are world-renowned, have yeah. great session players playing, but that's the thing a lot of people don't realize. You can have the best players, but they don't have that unique chemistry yeah. that a band has. And there was just something about, with Billy, what Liberty, Doug... Russell, Richie, and then later David Brown had together that just those guys in a room together created something that just no one can touch, no one can duplicate. You don't realize it until you go through these covers and you realize that that's what's missing all these times. Anytime you're like, yeah. something's wrong, something's off. It's, it's, it's really the rhythm section more than anything. With the rhythm section in mind, I think this last one gets an asterisk as far as it being a cover. I threw it on here because it, it is what it isn't. Yeah. Um, we're talking the Funk Club, which was Liberty DeVito's band, mm -hmm. and he lived in Orlando in the early 2000s. So this mm -hmm. was like 2000, 2002. And this was from their album, A Taste of Money, and they recorded Billy's song, Handball. Which is um, an unreleased track from around Turnstiles, and they've played a live a yep. bunch of times. It's an instrumental, very 70s, very of its time, but very fun. This is a great one to end on. 
after going through all these songs, like hearing Liberty on the song again is like a breath of fresh air. Like that's the pocket I've been looking for the whole time. <laughs> yeah, there it is. It's got that swing and that groove and that, mm. like you said, that pocket that just no one can duplicate. And yeah. it's Liberty with other guys. None of these guys played on the Billy records, but Liberty's got that unique feel. It just swings all the way through and just it's heavy hitting while being dynamic. Just incredible. And it's great to hear him so high up in the mix on this. I mean, if you've heard any version of Handball, it's going to be a concert recording, so it's not going to be the best mixed anyway. And now this is like 2000, so the sound is really crisp, and you really hear just every chunk of his hi-hat. Now, it sounds to me that he's playing a different groove on the on the main section. He's playing a... Where he was playing yeah. offbeats on the hi-hat in the originals, you know, a little more ghost noting. But still a very uh, Liberty beat. And uh, and then he gets a nice break towards the end. I'm digging the organ a hell of a lot on this one. Yeah, this song um, was a lot of fun. Yeah, this band was so fun. And I, I, I'm glad they smartly left out the handball, <laughs> which stuck out. I mean, I get it. It was called handball. And, you know, he says handball and then Spalding. But it just kind of jumps out at you on the Billy versions. Yeah. It's not necessary. So they obviously left it off and... I think they expanded the horn arrangements a bit more, and I think the song kind of died off before they really fleshed it out. Yeah, it was like a head to a jazz song, you know, it was made to be riffed on. It wasn't right. a composition composition. Made me think uh, the Funk Club actually covered some Billy Joel songs. She's Got Away, and You May Be Right, Funk Club style. Uh, like oh, yeah. instrumental and uh, organs and all? There's a vocal, Doug Bear, who was the organ player, thing. Doug's got such a great New Orleans soul rhythm and blues thing going on. Great singer. These sessions, they were dubbed Soul Joel. From what I remember, Billy actually dug him too. And they're very, very different. They're like super different. I'm, yeah. I'm excited um, to hear this now. Here's a little clip of You May Be Right.
And so here's another clip. This one is their version of She's Got Away.
So yeah, that was the Funk Club's take on Billy songs. Again, doing their complete own version of it. And it's funny, you know, I mean, obviously there was no drums on She's Got Away, but the the arrangements in these turn into a whole new song. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of fun to hear Liberty's take on these songs. All right, so that's our marathon. What is that, 28 songs we just covered? 28 Billy Joel covers. Who'd have thought there were that many out there? And there were some more out there. Like, there's a lot of live songs that some bands and artists have done in concert that were out there that we ran into, but Mm -hmm. we mostly wanted to stick to mostly studio recordings or recordings that were released. Let us know. What did we miss? What did you guys think of these? I'm sure opinion varies widely. And I'd, lo- I'd really yeah. love to see what people think of these. So I'd actually, I'm curious. Let's hear your top five of these tunes on, on this episode. We're curious. What are your top five covers here? Yeah. On the same token, what are your bottom five? What are the ones that keep you up at night? For all the wrong reasons. So let us know, you know, reach out to us. Uh, you can get us on email, glasshousespodcast at gmail.com. We read all of them and try and respond to everything. And who knows, we might even read some of them on, on the air on one of these episodes. And if you haven't already, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if you're so inclined. These uh, come to you all free, and it goes a long way for us to get that five-star review. It helps us reach more people. The more five-star reviews you have, the more people, the algorithms or whatever, will put it in front of. If you're looking for a way to support us, that's probably the best way you can do it right now. For sure. And if you guys are you know, into the whole social media thing, we're pretty active there as well. So you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you search Glass Houses, Billy Joel Podcast. You'll find us there. Mm-hmm. We do a lot of posting. We talk about the episodes and random little Billy things. So we'd love to have you guys a part of the conversation there. So uh, join us on social if you're so inclined. And with that, I'm going to sign off and listen to Ronnie Spector doing Say Goodbye to Hollywood. All right, let's do it. Let's <laughs> listen to some covers on the way out. Yeah. We'll see you guys next time on Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast.